From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm your host, Molly Kaplan. As of now, we know the status of two of the three branches of the federal government. We have President-elect Joe Biden in the executive and an even more conservative majority in the Supreme Court with the appointment of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. The future of Congress is still unknown as we await the results of two runoffs in Georgia that could hand control of the Senate to either party. But what we know, even before the results of those Senate races are in, is that the fate of civil rights and civil liberties hangs in the balance. Civil rights protections previously defended by a narrow majority in the Supreme Court could be in jeopardy. Alternatively, the Biden administration will have the opportunity to roll back Trump-era assaults like the Muslim ban. It might also get a chance at its own appointments. The future is unknown, but here to help us understand and forecast the impact of a Biden presidency and the most conservative Supreme Court in more than half a century is the ACLU's national legal director, David Cole. David, welcome back to the podcast for your sixth episode. At this point, I think we can anoint you the most frequent guest on At Liberty. Oh, thank you. I'm so honored. Uh, Always a pleasure. Before diving into the sort of state of things post-election, I wanted to first ask how you're doing, because as I remember, you started your role as the ACLU's national legal director on the heels of President Trump's victory in 2016. So I was curious what right now feels like with that in mind. Well, it's been an incredible ride. Never has the ACLU been more busy Never has it been more necessary than under the four years of the Trump administration. And it's been an honor, but an exhausting honor (laughs) to be the national legal director during that time. As you know, we filed more than 400 legal actions against the Trump administration. That is hundreds more than we have filed against any other presidential administration, including those that have served two terms and including Republicans and Democrats alike. So it's been incredibly busy. But I've been so proud of how much we have done to push back against the assaults that President Trump has been responsible for. I've been so buoyed by the people who have come forth to support us, to join us, to become part of our movement in defense of civil liberties. And I am so relieved that the American people came out to vote in record numbers and turned President Trump out of office. And As the ACLU's legal director, you're taking in two inputs that we have so far. We don't know yet what's going to happen with Congress, but we do know that we have President-elect Joe Biden, who we can assume, I think, that there will be maybe fewer civil rights and civil liberties restrictions and assaults. But we also have this newly fangled Supreme Court with the appointment of Justice Amy Coney Barrett to replace Justice Ginsburg after she died. And I'm curious in figuring out and sort of reading the tea leaves of what this means for you, but also for the ACLU and civil rights, civil liberties more broadly, let's look at the Supreme Court. So we have this 6-3 conservative majority. And to understand what that means going in with this term and going forward, it seems useful to understand how many high-profile civil rights and civil liberties cases were decided this past term and even before that. Can you help us table set and sort of consider how Justice Amy Coney Barrett coming in is affected by the context she comes into? Right. So if you want to get really depressed, think about all the cases that have come out in a pro-civil liberties or pro-civil rights way in the last 
15 to 20 years that were decided on a five to four vote with Justice Ginsburg in the majority. And that includes things like uh, protecting the right of abortion, recognizing marriage equality, striking down the death penalty for juveniles, striking down mandatory life without parole for juveniles, upholding affirmative action. You know, all of these were decided on five to four votes. You can add to it the decision last term to protect DACA recipients from President Trump's effort to basically pull the ground out from under them, and the decision two terms ago to reject President Trump's attempt to put a citizenship question on the census in order to skew the results of the census in a way that would favor the Republican Party. All of those cases were 5-4 with Ginsburg in the majority. She has now been replaced by Amy Coney Barrett, selected with the stamp of the good housekeeping stamp of approval of the Federalist Society, a far right conservative legal interest organization to whom President Trump has essentially delegated the selection of judges and justices. And that's really scary because there are going to be many more controversial civil liberties and civil rights issues going forward. And we now have not a five to four court where if you want to win a liberal decision, you need to convince one conservative justice to sort of recognize that this is the right result. But now you have to convince two. Uh, And they are all, all six of them, pretty strong conservatives, at least in terms of their past records. Also, it seems worth noting that there were a lot of decisions that were decided five to four that favored the conservative side, but how close they were. Like the fact that they were close, even on the conservative side, also seems worth noting. I'm thinking of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, campaign finance laws. And that seems also worthy of noting because it was close. Now we're not close. Right. And you can add to that the Affordable Care Act, which the first time around, when the question was whether the individual mandate, the requirement that people obtain health insurance, was constitutional, the court divided five to four on whether it would be legal for Congress to impose it generally and said no. And then it also divided five to four in a different way on whether it was permissible nonetheless as a tax, as a sort of tax provision. And of course, the court just heard another case about the Affordable Care Act this past week. It's interesting to think about already how that outcome could be affected or maybe not by the new court. And I think actually you said that it's unlikely that there would be a reversal. I think you said the chances of the entire ACA being declared invalid in this case are about the same as Trump's chances of successfully challenging his defeat in the presidential election. Uh, so you're Neil. reading my you're reading my tweets I am. now. I yeah, am. Yeah. I'm cheating. So yeah, this was the third challenge to reach the Supreme Court to the Affordable Care Act. I mean, the challengers just will not give up. But this one I think, is very likely to fail. Essentially, what the challengers argued was that because the court upheld the individual mandate previously on the ground that it was a tax and Congress has broader power to tax than it does to regulate generally, when in 2017 Congress zeroed out the tax penalty for the mandate, that took away the sort of taxing power argument to uphold the individual mandate Therefore, the individual mandate's unconstitutional. That's the first argument. But the second argument is, since the individual mandate is unconstitutional, one provision in this massive law, 
the court should strike down the entire law because, in the legal doctrine's words, that provision is inseverable. That is, the law just doesn't make sense without the individual mandate and the tax. The court seemed quite unreceptive to that argument that you should strike down the entirety of the law based on the fact that Congress took a provision that was held to be constitutional and essentially just zeroed out the penalty associated with the provision. So the notion that somehow the entirety of the law should be struck down because this one provision was zeroed out, very extreme argument, but an argument advanced by the state of Texas and the Trump administration. Now, it sounds like we're not terribly concerned about the outcome of that argument in terms of it being worse off because of the presence of Justice Barrett. But it does seem like now that this 6-3 conservative majority has been secured, that this will likely have longstanding civil rights and civil liberties impact on precedent, that this will somehow embolden certain organizations, certain state legislators to sort of push the envelope on what is possible. Can you speak to that a little? Oh, absolutely. So we've already seen since Trump took office promising to put on the court justices who would overturn Roe versus Wade and then putting three justices on the court. We have already seen in this time period states, and particularly red states, ramp up their anti-abortion laws and pass law after law after law, many of which are pretty obviously unconstitutional under existing precedent. But what they're hoping is that with the new personnel on the court, arguments that previously were clear losers can be winners today. And the same thing in the area of religious refusals, essentially the invocation of a free exercise right to discriminate, usually against LGBT folks. The groups are making much more aggressive arguments in that realm. And of course, many mentioned Roe v. Wade as another precedent that is under threat right now. Is that something that you're also keeping an eye on? Absolutely. Again, he's put on three justices who he said would overturn Roe versus Wade. Whether they will is only time will tell. There are two justices on the court already who would clearly overturn Roe versus Wade, Alito and Thomas. And so, you know, two plus three counts to five in my book, and five is all you need on the Supreme Court. So there's a real risk there. I think whether they do that or not will depend on a lot, but principally it will depend on how much people who care about preserving reproductive freedom engage, work with organizations that stand for that right, advocate for that right. Because the more costly it appears to the court to take the right away in terms of its legitimacy, the less likely it will have the gumption to actually do it. The court is an institution that has to be perceived as legitimate within the democratic polity. And if it gets far out of whack with where the American people are on important fundamental constitutional questions, then its legitimacy gets called into question. And I think Roe versus Wade is one of those examples where it has been on the books for 40 years. The, The public opinion polls say that the significant majority of Americans think that Women should have the right to choose whether to terminate a pregnancy, and it should not be a crime to get an abortion. And I think that those kinds of things affect the court. The court decides questions based on law, but it has to look to precedent, and it can't get too far out of step with where the American people are. 
And actually, in a Washington Post op-ed, you framed the fact that the Supreme Court cares about its legitimacy in the eyes of the public as one way to view how under threat civil rights and civil liberties are under this court. And you actually frame that relying on that care for legitimacy as almost a better track than some of the other alternatives that have been presented. Can you speak to why the knowledge that public persona matters might actually be the salve um, or the savior as opposed to some of the other alternatives, which come with a lot of risk. Right. So I think the first thing is that political science scholars have studied the court and studied the court's decisions as they relate to public opinion on the fundamental values questions that the courts are deciding. And in prominent cases, in cases where the people are watching, and they're not all prominent, and so the people are not always watching, and that's a problem sometimes. But, but where, like same-sex marriage, for example. Yeah, same-sex like marriage example. or affirmative action or abortion, right. where the people are watching, what political science researchers have found is that the court rarely departs from where the country is. And that is in part out of this concern for the institution's legitimacy. The court has no army. The court has no guns. The court has no power to enforce its orders. Its orders are followed only if we, the people, believe it's legitimate. The court serves for life. They don't have to run for re-election. So when you run for re-election, you get legitimacy from the fact that people have agreed to let you stay in office. They voted to put you back in office. That's a form of legitimacy. But when you don't have that and you exercise power that is not accountable to the democratic process, you've got to be careful because you don't have that to sort of build up your legitimacy. So how do you build up your legitimacy? I think you do it by adhering to precedent, which makes it harder to overturn precedent, by not getting too far out from where the people are. And I think by not acting in a partisan way, by being open and fair and listening to both sides and not being predictable that you will come out in every case with the conservatives on one side and the liberals on the other side. Because if that's the case, right, if we know that every serious controversial civil liberties case is going to be decided six to three from now on forward, well, why would we give that institution any legitimacy? Right? Why would we even engage in the process? There'd be no point in engaging in the process. And so I think those factors lead justices to have an incentive to kind of move towards the center. That, I think, is ultimately what we rely upon. It's what we should be relying upon. And if the court fails, if it in fact acts like a partisan machine, well, then I think you turn to these more drastic measures of court reform. Well, I'm curious in questioning the notion that at this point, in this time and place, it is possible for court justices to not be political. I completely understand the argument that in a sort of vacuum, theoretically, it's really important that the court not be perceived as a political arm. Is it possible? Like, is that realistic to think that court justices are going to sort of leave politics at the door? So I don't think they necessarily leave politics at the door, but it's a different kind of politics. And it's a politics that is not looking at just what do the Republicans want, but rather a politics that asks, in a sense, how is the court situated in this country? And so if all they did was to vote party line, 
then we wouldn't have had a term like last term where we had a five to four majority conservative court, Republican conservative court with two Trump appointees. And yet they upheld and protected the right to abortion on a five to four vote. They extended employment discrimination protections to LGBT folks on a six to three vote with two of the conservatives joining the liberals. They declared half of Oklahoma to be Native American land on a five to four vote. They rejected President Trump's efforts to avoid subpoenas on a seven to two vote with both of the Trump appointees joining the liberals in rejecting Trump's argument. And they protected DACA recipients by a five to four vote, right? That would be inexplicable in Congress. If those issues had gone to Congress and Congress was five, there were five Republican congressmen and four Democratic congressmen, all of those issues would have come out with the Republicans winning. And in in fact, all of those issues came out with the liberal side winning. But I also want to go back to a footnote we sort of glided over that you made earlier, which is that the public opinion really matters for the cases where the public is watching. But Implicit in that is that there are cases where people are not watching, that have not entered into the sort of public consciousness the way that same-sex marriage did and the slogans around that, which were so inviting. Love wins, you know? And I'm wondering, what are the cases where people aren't watching that we should be watching? Like, what are the ones that are at risk right now because they're flying under the radar? Yeah. So first of all, you're a very careful reader. Most people do glide over the footnotes. That's why they're footnotes. But <laughs> but it's a great question. The court for the last 50 years has been conservatives. And yet, you know, you can go through a whole litany of liberal results. But if you look at business cases, if you look at cases that involve the rights of consumers or the rights of workers as against business, they are consistently down the line voting in favor of business. So, and those are cases that don't get the same amount of attention because there, sadly, there isn't an ACLU and an NAACP like organizations on the sort of workers and consumers side. I would include in that, sadly, immigrants' rights. Yeah. I mean, we fight for immigrants' rights, but, you know, at the end of the day, many of those cases just don't get as much attention. DACA did. DACA, because you had 700,000 very sympathetic young people whose lives were on the line. It did. But Mr. Thurassingham, our client in the case last term about expelling him without any judicial review, nobody can even pronounce his name, much less read about him or get out in the streets. And it's to, a devastating story. I mean, it's yeah. it's a loss that we aren't paying attention. He was tortured. He came to this country to seek safety. And there's a risk. I actually don't know what is going on right now with that case, but there's a risk that he could be deported. And the consequences are life-threatening, not just for him, but for what it means for others in his situation. Absolutely. A terrible, terrible decision, but it got very, very little attention. And so I think what that says for citizens is it's absolutely important that you pay attention, that you work with organizations of like-minded people who are paying attention and support their efforts so that the court knows that it's acting in a context where the eyes of the country are on it. Because if the eyes of the country are not on it, then all those forces I was talking about before, which I think may give us some hope, even with a conservative court, and are really all that can explain all the liberal results we've gotten over the years from a conservative court, 
won't operate. And let's talk a little bit about plan B. Like if the public persona point doesn't work, you mentioned that some of the other alternatives in Ether might be worth exploring. One of them is court packing. Can you explain to us what court packing is? So court packing is a term that those who don't like court reform use. <laughs> but the basic idea... What's I mean, a I better think name? Court reform. Court, court reform, reform is a more neutral term. But court packing is the idea that you don't like the balance of power on the court. So you add justices to the court until you get to a different balance. So that's what court packing is. It was made famous by FDR, who during the New Deal, when the Supreme Court was as conservative as it's ever been and was striking down literally hundreds of laws protecting consumers and workers from business. And then, because it was the Depression, People were paying attention. And so he said, this is outrageous. I'm And the justices are awfully old. I'm going to appoint X number of new justices for every justice who's over X number of years of age to help them out with their work. And everybody saw through it. Everybody realized it was just designed to put more Democrats on the court and change the balance of power on the court. It was rejected. And it was rejected, I think, because it really does undermine the independence of the court if the political branches just start adding justices every time the Because it could backfire. I mean, once we have a different president or a Republican president back in office, what's to stop them from doing exactly the same thing? Nothing is the answer. And so you would then have the court would be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And whoever's in power would just put justices on until they got a sufficient majority. And then the same thing would happen with the next administration. And and you'd ultimately politicize the court. Now, I, I should say, The ACLU has no position on court reform at this point. The board has not taken a position. The board has uh, appointed a committee to look into this question. So what the ACLU's positions will be, I don't know. But my own personal view is that court packing is dangerous because it politicizes the court. And that people who care about civil liberties and civil rights should be nervous about things that politicize the court. Because the whole idea of civil liberties and civil rights is that these are rights that can't be adequately protected through a political process. So if you turn the Supreme Court into a political process, then where are the unpopular speakers, the religious minorities, the people of color to go to obtain protection? So I think we have to be very careful about those kinds of court reform. But that's not the only kind of court reform. Well, I'm curious, just staying on the court reform point and the idea of adding justices, it makes sense what you're saying about the Supreme Court justice, but what about adding justices in lower courts, like the courts of appeals, where just from what I know, it seems like judges are incredibly overworked and that there could be additional arguments beyond political arguments for adding Yeah, I mean, I think where there really is a legitimate need for more judges, absolutely. And that has happened over the years, and not so much for partisan reasons, but for workload reasons, absolutely. I mean, there's other forms of court reform that aren't so partisan and might make sense. The one that I think might have the most promise, at least sort of from a theoretical standpoint, is the notion that the justices would serve 18-year terms and they would be staggered at two-year intervals so that every two years, a justice would sort of roll off the court, creating an opportunity for the current president to replace that justice. And that would mean that every president has guaranteed two appointments. And the idea is that that would bring the temperature down in terms of the partisan battles over appointments. Because right now, the reason it's such a battle is because you never know. It's a wild card. 
It's a total wild card. You never know when the opportunity is going to open up. You never know when you get another opportunity. And it's so also macabre. Everybody. You're sort of waiting for people to die or worried people yeah. are going to die. And yeah. yeah, and worth noting that the option you just mentioned, which is an 18-year term limit, just got a huge bit of backing from two dozen constitutional law experts. So this is something that might have legs. Well, it might in a different world. I mean, right now it's not going to have legs, I don't think, because I think what would need to happen is Number one, you'd have to have a solid Democratic majority in both houses of Congress. And if we have a Democratic majority at all in the Senate, it's going to be a barest of bare 50-50 plus Kamala Harris majority. So I think you'd need stronger Democratic majorities. And you would need to have a record of the court, this court, really acting in a way that people are outraged by. And thus far, I don't think we've seen that. I think we've definitely seen outrageous decisions, but we've also seen a lot of really good decisions. And it's a mixed bag. And that's sort of not likely to create the impetus for court reform. I want to turn briefly to the Biden administration and what the effect that that term could have on civil rights and civil liberties. And the first thing that comes to mind is whether or not the administration will be able to roll back some of the executive orders and administrative measures the Trump administration imposed. I'm thinking of the Muslim ban as the one that comes to mind first. Is that something that you're keeping an eye out for? Is that something that the ACLU might play a hand in advocating? Absolutely. You know, I mean, the good thing about the damage that Trump has done in the past four years is that almost all of it was done through unilateral executive action. That means that almost all of it can be undone through unilateral executive action. So that even if, you know, Democrats do not have the majority in the Senate and Biden therefore can't get legislation enacted, he can act unilaterally. He can lift the Muslim ban on day one. And I would be surprised if he doesn't lift it on day one. He could reverse all of the Trump anti-asylum policies, the, the family separation policies, the return to Mexico policy, all of the border wall, he could just turn those all around through executive action. And I think he will turn around many of them. We're pushing, obviously, on our cases, but also on cases of our allies, that he do, that he set the boat aright by reversing a lot of what President Trump has done. But there's so much there. Uh, that it's going to be a lot of work, number one. Number two, you will have right-wing interest groups challenging many of these reversals. And I mean, so the way the ACLU did. Just like the ACLU and many other groups challenged a lot of what Trump did on administrative procedure law grounds. And so you have to do it in a way that's defensible in court and that's careful. And so it'll take some time and it will take pressure. It will require people who care about these rights and these issues to really be active in demanding that Biden do the right thing. So that's looking at the rollback side of things. So pulling back some of the ground we lost under the Trump administration. I'm wondering about how the Biden administration might need to consider having such a conservative majority in the Supreme Court for proactive 
things. I mean, obviously, I'm leaving out here the whole side, which is the environment, technology, the finance industry, which are sort of programmatic things that they might want to do that a Supreme Court with this conservative majority could hold back. But in the civil rights and civil liberty space, are there things that you are aware of or sort of keeping an eye on where, um, I'll leave it to you to give an example of proactive things that the Biden administration might not be able to do with this conservative majority? So that's a good question. I think we will continue to see this on LGBT rights, for example. The Biden administration, I think we can expect, will be very progressive on LGBT rights and will get rid of all the anti-LGBT stuff that Trump did and put forward affirmative measures that seek to advance LGBT rights. You will see resistance to that, and it will come in the form of claims of religious conscience And many of those cases could go to the Supreme Court. And this is a court, these six are not only conservative, but they're quite, one of the things they really agree on is that the Constitution does not adequately protect the religiously faithful in this country. And so that's one area where I think we're going to see some pushback. Any kind of race-conscious effort on the part of the Biden administration to provide racial justice is going to trigger the kinds of challenges that affirmative action sees. Anytime you use race in a conscious way to try to ameliorate the history of systemic racism in this country, that can be challenged on the ground that it violates equal protection because it's not colorblind. And actually, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was asked if she agreed with the late Justice Antonin Scalia that the Voting Rights Act was a racial entitlement. Is that what you're talking about here? Can you explain well, that? Well, I'm talking about that's part of it, but I'm, I'm, you know, the affirmative action, for example, right? The conservative attack on affirmative action is that the Constitution requires that we be colorblind. The way to correct racial discrimination is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. That's what As if we chief, lived in a post-racial society. Yeah. And so that's a quote from Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, that the way to end discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And that view is going to be in the ascendant. And just yesterday, a court of appeals in Boston upheld a Harvard's affirmative action plan. Next stop, the Supreme Court. Whether they'll take that case, we'll see. But if the Biden administration, right, I mean, one of the things the Biden administration has already pledged to do is to be responsive to the people who got him there, which includes in a significant way, black voters. The demonstrations we've seen over the summer in response to George Floyd's death have really created a lot of momentum for racial justice reform. But if any of that reform takes the form of a race-conscious measure, there's real risk that it'll get overturned by the Supreme Court. To take us out of the gloom side of things, there's also the chance on the flip side that the Biden administration could have an influence on the Supreme Court. I mean, if a position becomes open, Biden has pledged to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. So there's that side of things, too. Do you think that he will have a chance of being able to get any judges approved, let alone Supreme Court justices during his at least four years? Oh, I think he'll get some judges approved, even if the Republicans control the Senate. But they'll have to be quite moderate judges, because in order to get any judge or justice approved, he's going to have to peel off some votes from the Republicans. And that's very, very hard to do. So the only way you would do that is by making deals or by putting up people who are very, very moderate. You know, it's possible that in 2022, 
the Democrats wrest control of the Senate. Then he has two years with the Democratic Senate, and he could act much like President Trump did and just, you know, put lots of people on the court. So we will see. But the court gets a lot of attention. But the reality is that in most people's lives, for most people, the civil rights and civil liberties, their civil rights and civil liberties are much more dependent on their local police chief, their local mayor, their governor, state laws, local laws. And so we just have to continue to be vigilant in both defending against assaults at that state and local level and where we can using sympathetic governors and legislatures and town councils and DAs and prosecutors and police chiefs to advance progressive visions of justice. And I think we can do that. This is a country with many, many different states, and they all have a lot of flexibility. And and particularly on things like criminal justice, where there really is bipartisan agreement that the system is broken, that the system is far too big and far too harsh. I think we can make a lot of advances, but we have to continue to be engaged. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I'm worried about is the sense of complacency on the part of people who care about civil rights and civil liberties, because we just went through four years of high alert, red alert on civil rights. And now that Biden's in office, people might think, oh, we can turn it down to a yellow alert or something like that. And therefore, I don't really have to continue to support these groups like the ACLU. I don't have to continue to go out on the streets and protest. No, you do have to, because the only way that we will make advances and the only way we will be strong enough to fight the battles that we will continue to have to fight is if people stay involved, stay engaged and stay supportive. Right, right. So there are things that the Biden administration can do. Yeah, definitely. In sort of wrapping this up, I'm wondering, it seems like a lot remains to be seen. There's a lot ahead of us. But are there any bellwethers you're looking to as indicators of what the next Supreme Court term could be, not to mention the next four years? You know, I don't think you can make judgments based on a single case. You really have to kind of take the term as a whole. And particularly with new justices, you kind of have to let, like, be patient. You need to be patient in terms of making judgments, don't write these justices off right away. You can write them off after some time if they show that their colors are not changing and not even open to reconsideration. So watch, be patient, but mostly be active because the likelihood that these conservative justices will do anything other than be conservative will depend on whether they think the country is demanding them to be something other than conservative. And I think another point you made is be active before it necessarily makes it to the Supreme Court. So when it's brewing on the local level, pay attention, get that word out. That is part of the battle. Absolutely. Most disputes never get to the Supreme Court. They get resolved through the political process. They get resolved through settlement. They get resolved by decisions that the court doesn't. Yeah, and cases that the court doesn't review. So that's an equally important point. We shouldn't get too, we tend to focus on the Supreme Court because it is the Supreme Court, but there's so much that goes on Uh, outside of its bailiwick that matters so much to civil rights and civil liberties. And, you know, that's why I love the fact that the ACLU has affiliates in every state, because that means we have an organization on the ground in every state that knows what's really going on, what's really going on on the ground 
in Oklahoma, and that's going to be different from Alaska and different from New Hampshire and different from Vermont. Well, Vermont civil liberties are safe in Vermont, but you know, other than Vermont, uh, so it's important to keep your eye on the whole picture and the local picture as well as the national. I feel like I can see future At Liberty episodes unfolding before my eyes. For now, David, thank you so much for joining us. It's always such a pleasure. The sixth appearance rose to all the other appearances. Well, thank thank you. you. And I have to maintain my record, right? So you have a reputation at this point. (laughs) All right. Thanks, David. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate your feedback. And until next week, stay strong.